Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, and welcome. My guest this month has acting in her blood, but she has always ploughed her own particular furrow. Part of the extraordinary collective that was Knee-High Theatre, she worked with them on and off for over 20 years. She was also recently starred in two astonishing feature films where her work on screen has been rightly lauded. Welcome, Mary Woodvine. Thank you very much. It's <laughs> really... Make, <laughs> makes me want to cry, actually. <laughs> no, I don't wish to upset you. No, I, all, all of those things Great are start. true. All of those things I've said are true, which is good. Um, now, I often, when I talk on, on my podcast to guests who are from a performing background, or, or I often ask how it all started, but I'm assuming you literally were born in a trunk at the side of the stage. <laughs> uh, not quite, although I took my, my son when he was five months old and took him in a trunk at the side of the stage. That was the last, I think that was the last knee high show I did. I took my son then and he was five months old. Um, no, I wasn't, but it meant, I think because both my parents were actors, um, um, they'd met at the Bristol Old Vic doing um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. And dad was, what, were they, what were they playing? Well, dad was playing one of the lovers and mum was playing a fairy. Excellent. Perfect. <laughs> um, but I think because of that, I think it was just one of those things that, because somebody asked me how I got into it the other day, and I think it was just always an option, whereas I think for lots of people, they don't necessarily think of it. I mean, I think more they do more now, but certainly, yeah, when I was growing up, that it just kind of wasn't an option for lots of people. It wasn't something they thought, oh, I know, I'll be an actor, but because it was just sort of, my world normal. really it was just normal and we didn't really have extended family we just had hundreds of you know actor friends and mum's divorced actor girlfriends and <laughs> <laughs> it was just like yeah lovely I'm also I'm always slightly fascinated obviously not, I, not just you I have, I have friends who who like you are children of actors and um I, I always I suppose, in a sense, you mentioned about your own son being in a trunk, and now my kids are very comfortable and just used to being in a rehearsal room or on a set because they've grown up with it. But I, I, I suppose that sense of when both of your parents do it, it's not just like, because my, my partner's a psychotherapist, so it's not like we're both actors, whereas both of your parents did it, and then that was just the norm, I suppose. But did you go and visit when if your dad was filming somewhere did you go and visit on set or did you go to rehearsals or was it just a separate thing and that's what they did um I think it was quite a separate thing mum mum didn't work so much when we were little uh yeah. she'd she'd stopped working um she'd been working at the establishment when she got pregnant with my sister so with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and wow bird and fortune and she was performing with that gang yeah she was performing with that gang and then got pregnant with my sister so then she left and then Helena Bron got the job that she had and oh my God. <laughs> she's always gone like hmm she was always <laughs> a little bit <laughs> wow but, um, proper showbiz kind of cool Cool oh, man. Showbiz royalty, that is. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so, she, yeah, but she didn't work quite so much. Um, and 
then ended up getting you know working in a school and being a school secretary and doing things like that and then she trained to be a counsellor interestingly enough um but dad I often talk about dad just not being around very much because he you know he was we saw him on Sundays because there wasn't a show on Sundays um I'd sometimes come home I'd see him uh after I came home from school before he went to the theatre he'd sometimes be on his hands and knees cleaning the kitchen floor <laughs> good memory I've got of my dad in his pants interesting <laughs> well it can I be that was can, so it... it can be hot work I think manual well I think it was <laughs> manual labor yeah but I think it was so he didn't get his trousers dirty yes. while he was kneeling on the floor I think to give him view and also <laughs> a, an actor with as prestigious as your dad I I, that's a strange image for me because I think of him in Shakespeare yeah. and Eugene O'Neill <laughs> being brilliant, by the way. Um, but I suppose my other question around that is, did you have any moments, because it was so normal and it was, as you say, an option, did you have moments when you were younger where you kind of reacted against that, that I, I'm not going to go into the family business, so to speak? No, I didn't. My sister did. Okay. Um, but I didn't I just thought oh well this is this is what I'm going to do and I wasn't very academic and I didn't do very well at school and it seemed to be the one thing that people kind of went oh well you're not bad at that so I thought <laughs> oh well this this is just going to be this is going to be it and I don't have to write either because I you know yes as I said not brilliantly academic um so you did school plays just, yeah 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 did the school play did school plays and then joined youth theatres and then I did the national youth wow. um then I did an OA in drama um, when what's the OA? An OA, I think, is equivalent to a an S level. I think it's literally in between oh. GCSE now and an and an A level. It was sort of an in betweeny one. I did that, and then I tried to get into drama school and did it two years running. Didn't get in the first year, but but got did the National Youth Theatre, which was just amazing. Um, yeah. So and then, I was, and was I, the National Youth Theatre your kind of training in a sense then? Um. No, but I think, and I think then, like today, it just gives you a really good grounding in terms of, it's got such a brilliant reputation and it did then. You know, I was doing that with Daniel Craig and a guy what? called Jonathan Cake and, and I got my first job because the, the director who worked on my second year piece um, was uh, a guy called Bill Buffery, who then took on the directorship of a theatre company in Devon. Oh. So I finished drama school, did some temping work and saw that he'd taken over this um, directorship of this company called Orchard. Yes, I, I know Orchard. Yes, of course I do. Yeah, yeah. Long, so long term I, company. In yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I wrote to him, sent him a postcard just saying, oh, I understand you're taking this on and, you know, please consider me if there's anything suitable for casting. And that's how I got my first job. Oh. So that was all through having done the, the National Youth Theatre. I have to rewind slightly here. So your mother was hanging out with yeah. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and you with the future James Bond. It's very, very... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds incredibly glamorous, what doesn't was, it? What was it like? <laughs> oh, it was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It was absolutely lovely. But we were all like a... Um, 19 was the... Yeah, probably 17, 18 or 19, what do you know, late yeah. late teens anyway. So a great time um, to be in a company and doing plays. And... Oh, it was, you know, and it was that was the first time that I really knew what it was like because it was that kind of immersive two weeks or maybe one or two weeks, really intense, getting to know a group really well and working on something and suddenly that and that that was it. Like loads of people get, you know, I, I do lots of theatre now. <clears throat> 
where there's a community element and they use people from the community to to add to the productions and you just see them fall in love with it yeah. absolutely get lost in it and you go oh i remember yeah i remember that, that feeling um <laughs> you mentioned drama school did you go to welsh college is that right i did go to welsh college oh. yeah and how was that it was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant i didn't go home <laughs> everybody else <laughs> it was sort of like it was um yeah lots of i made fantastic friends i'm ashamed to say that you know i i didn't know anybody spoke the welsh language which i was really appalled by myself you know and i was considered myself you know i'd been to a good comprehensive school yeah. i considered myself to be quite worldly yeah. and um had no idea that it was like a proper people's first language yeah. so um it was brilliant but sort of like halfway through the term people were going home and i just didn't go back i just stayed i i loved it it was fantastic so you're, what, i lived with some lovely people oh brilliant and you're we're kind of contemporary so what would this be kind of late 80s or early 90s uh yeah late 80s so i was there well no mid 80s went in 86 yes i went to middlesex in 86 yeah, yeah. right yeah it's weird because when I, uh, I i i kind of will come to this shortly obviously knee high we've both you more so than me but we've both obviously been uh, part of that extraordinary uh, thing but i kind of in my head i thought oh i bet mary went to dartington i don't know why Ooh. my brain had that kind of vibe but you were at the, the, a, a classical drama school training mary <laughs> i was <laughs> and i was very very lucky as well because it was a college of music and drama um i got a scholarship and I had singing lessons for a year, uh, for the three years. Oh, so I brilliant. learned, I learned proper singing, which was really confusing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd always sung, we'd always sung. And, and this is like, this sounds like the absolute epitome of um, coming from an acting family. But, you know, mum's friends would come round with a guitar, we'd all <laughs> sit and sing and harmonise. And um, and so I'd sung all my life. And then suddenly to learn the kind of technique to sing in inverted commas properly, um, I literally couldn't sing for a while. I just, it was the sort of the, the relearning process. Wow. When I felt, just couldn't sing couldn't remember how to do it it was really odd and then and then you just let the technique take you back to yeah. where you were so ah. um and of course you then go through that and you talk about working in in uh with orchard Did, was that what first took you to that part of the world sort of devon and cornwall because you're, you're not from well, you're not from cornwall are you no i'm not from cornwall but i was very lucky and i from the age of six came to Cornwall for every single holiday okay. so you knew it well. six weeks every summer okay. so I knew it really well anyway um then I got my first job in Devon and then there used to be something called the Southwest Theatre Consortium mm -hmm. and uh and it just meant like now that everybody in the local companies everybody supports one another everybody goes to see what everybody else is doing and so because I was doing um working with Orchard, Mike Shepherd, who was the founder member of Nehi, came to watch this Orchard show. Um, and then and then that was it, really. Just got to know everybody. And then I worked with Tristan with the next second production. So the first production I did with them was Carol Churchill's Fen. Oh. Which was quite heavy going, if anybody knows. Yeah. Um, it's amazing, yeah. thing, obviously. But every village hall sort of, it was kind of, 
it was bigger than mid village halls it was sort of small scale touring um everywhere we'd go people would go oh we liked it when you did Lorna Doom <laughs> you know <laughs> or, or the woman in black yeah. but we sort of turned up with Fen which yeah. is pretty and also, dark I mean, it's an extraordinary <laughs> play but I can imagine people going oh yes I, I, I'd rather Lorna Doom than this slightly abstract challenging sort of <laughs> somebody being stuck in a wardrobe yes. and oh god it was just like horrific um it was a, you know it's an amazing play but it was very funny people's reactions to it um and so then I worked with Tristan Sturrock like the next thing that we did I think was um oh I might have done a Christmas show oh, we did Beauty and the Beast um and then the, the third show was Midsummer Night's Dream and Tristan Sturrock was in that oh. and Tris was obviously a massive knee-high member and uh Tris and I knew each other from when we were teenagers because he was doing something in London I can't remember what it was and needed somewhere to stay and his mom was a friend of a friend of my mom's so we met when we were teenagers because he stayed at my house and then reconnected as and then reconnected yeah and then it and then I when I'd done the Christmas show I'd met Giles King who's then you know Tris's best mate um and then Giles and I got together as a result of that and in fact Tristan was our best man when we got was together. he oh brilliant yeah well more knee high shortly but it's interesting that for, you, you talk about your first encounter with them because I remember my first encounter which was obviously later but was I think something like 97 or 98 they were doing a Nick Dark play called The Riot at the National Theatre you weren't yeah movie. Yeah, I was, yeah. Oh, I'm so yeah. sorry. I, I should have written okay. that, shouldn't I? I should have gone. You were absolutely <laughs> marvellous, Mary. <in> the... <laughs> if you want um, to storm out of the podcast, feel free. <laughs> I, um, anyway, I auditioned for Mike for that. And I got a recall. And then I didn't get it. And I always enjoy ribbing Mike over the years that uh, that he didn't want me initially. I had to keep begging to get into Neha. Uh, but I remember then, must have been a couple of years later, and they... We're doing the red shoes. Emma was directing the red shoes. And yeah, I yeah, think yeah. someone they'd done it once briefly, and, and a, a Portuguese performer didn't do it. Luis, that's yeah. it, Luis. And they said, "Would I?" Rang me up and said, "Would I? Would I be interested?" And I thought, "Well, I do like the sound of this knee high." And of course, when someone says no to you, you like them even more, don't you? So I would like, absolutely. <laughs> so they said, "Why don't you come down and meet me and Emma?" And I'd never been south of Bristol before. I had no idea. And I got on my. Tr- I was from Birmingham, and I, then I lived in London. And I thought, where am I going? This feels like the Wild West. The train went on forever. I was like, <laughs> and then Mike picked me up and said, Oslo. I didn't know them. And we, we drove to the bar, the amazing barns. I should explain for listeners are these extraordinary uh, in Goran Haven, the barns where Neha used to make all their work. And we met there and we spoke. And then Emma and Mike said, Oh, come on, we'll go to the pub. And we walked around the back of the barns. And for them, it was, you know, everyday thing. And there was the ocean. And I must have stood like some kid who'd never seen the sea. <laughs> Look, like, and, they, and they went, you're right. I said, yeah, I've, I've just been rehearsing my uh, a car park in Westbourne Grove. <laughs> so that environment, which you were obviously used to your summer holidays, for me was astonishing that people could make work in that place. Yeah. And then once you kind of hooked into that, and obviously you, was that something where you thought, I'm just part of this now, this world of knee-high. Was that where you kind of... I know it's, uh, it's hard to say because there's so many loose, ensemble type members of people, but I remember meeting you with, with Giles in in that time as well, and you were around. And But did you just kind of slip into that world? Or uh, Yeah. 
it was um i look back and i just think how lucky and amazing that time was because i was also really really lucky i had actually already had an agent in london uh-huh. so i'd literally like live in a van me and giles up at the barns because they're so it's like three or four barns all joined together which at the time some bits had horse tack and a horse in it and some so we only had a couple of them but as the company grew we sort of took over more and it was all rented from the national trust and uh we just sort of lived there there's a car park so we kind of lived in a van tris lived in a van we all ate together um but then every now and then i just like get a call from my agent and jump on the train and go off and do a telly or something like that. <laughs> and then just disappear. We're talking about the mid nineties, you know, so it was quite a lot of good, you know, it's television, lots of, and I was in my, you know, early twenties. So, you, were you know, with James Bond again, weren't you? Uh, oh yes. Yeah. And um, yeah. <laughs> our friends, our in, friends the in the North. Yeah. yeah. That was a, that was great doing that. It's a long way to Newcastle from, yeah. uh, from Cornwall. Um, but yeah, just so lucky. And in fact, my current partner, well, my partner, rather it makes it sound a bit temporary. Doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. um, <laughs> For the moment, we'll, we'll come to him in a minute, just in case we'll he disappears in a before I get to talk about him. But he says things like, he said to me not long ago, we were talking about something, he said, what about the stone roses? And I said, I don't know. I just don't know who the stone roses are. You know, I kind of think I do, but I never really knew their music. And he was like, what? Oh, he said, were you living in a caravan made of theatre? <laughs> were, exactly. were you with the theatre troupe at the time? <laughs> I was. I was living in a caravan made of theatre. That was it. And we, we, that was it. We just And we listened to folk music. And as the 90s wore on, they, we did get a bit housey and clubby. But the very, the early part, certainly when I first met Giles in uh, uh, 90, Christmas 90, um, the early part, we just sort of listened to folk music and world music, and we didn't know anything about. I didn't know anything about the Stone Roses or Blur or Pulp or anybody <laughs> like that. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> well, Give me Planksty any day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, well, it's actually you. You mentioned Mark Jenkin, your uh, your partner, and it, it does bring me to to these two astonishing films, and um, and I'm sure you've. Uh, been inundated with people wanting to talk to you about them, and 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 it is it. They are extraordinary. I, I I I just had two quotes I really liked, which I wanted to kick off and maybe talk a little bit about Bait first. If anyone obviously hasn't seen this film, I'm sure lots of people have, but uh, it is an extraordinary film, uh, written written and directed by Mark Jenkins. But yeah. the thing and that's and developed and everything, and, God, exactly, and edited. Yeah, yeah that's what I think it. is extraordinary. Sorry, it's almost like Charlie Chaplin, everything. You know, music. Yeah. It's astonishing. Um, but two quotes I really liked. One, obviously, you've heard these probably, but there's a big supporter of Mark and the film was the critic Mark Commode. Uh, who uh, brilliantly supported it, I assume, right from the get-go. That's the feeling I get when I read about it. And he oh, yeah. talks about it being a genuine modern masterpiece, which establishes Jenkins as one of the most arresting and intriguing British filmmakers of his generation. And then Peter Bradshaw, the critic in The Guardian, this is the way I like to say, Bait is like an episode of EastEnders directed by F.W. Murnau, which I, thought, <laughs> which I thought was absolutely brilliant. And it's an extra, in some ways, it's a very, very good description of the film yeah obviously you know him very well and he's processed very well but reading about it this was years in the planning and preparation and the making through the short films and all of that and 
uh, I just was curious when I that sense. I suppose that sense of being around somebody, like you talked about your parents, but being around someone that has that level of endurance, you know, to to keep something going. There must have been times when he thought, "Am I going to get this film made?" Or what was it like being around someone that was pursuing something so single-mindedly like that? Um, that's that is just that's his character. I mean, that's what he does. He just <laughs> pursues things single-mindedly <laughs> <laughs> until it happens, and it's. And it is, yeah, and it is, it, it is amazing to sort of, to watch. And when I first met him, I, I, I was aware that I was sort of in the company of somebody who absolutely kind of committed 100% and, and yeah, kept working. And we were just having a chat yesterday about, I was saying, you know, are you, are you, are you content? And he was saying, yeah, we're both talking about just what we want out of life. And, and he said, well, yeah, but I wouldn't mind an Oscar. And I was like, are you joking? And he said, no. And it's like, you know, he that he's really, and I think, and he decided at a very, very young age that he was, he was going to achieve things. Um, and I have to say, I, I, I didn't. I, I, I don't even, I'm not even that ambitious either. So it's just, it's, and it's so it's brilliant to be with somebody who is that driven, yeah, yeah. And that single-minded, because <clears throat> it does completely. And sometimes it's a pain in the arse, obviously, but um, <laughs> but sometimes you know. But most of the time, it's it's incredible. I'm sure it is. And, and in the in your role in Bait, I, I was interested. Did you did you um was that always something that you 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 were going to play or? Did Mark look at other actors and then arrive at you, or how did how did that work? Not for bait. For bait, I think I was always that was yeah that was always going to be me. Um, although you know he'd been writing it for years and years and years, it ha it came in very many forms, and I think I can't remember with that the draft that we actually shot might have been like draft. 30 or wow. something written it so many times or maybe even 40 written it and it had loads of different names and it just and it was like 10 15 years in the making or even i can't remember Gosh. he'll hate me for misquoting no, no. um but yeah but then with ennis main um he said i couldn't play the, the main volunteer <sighs> and he needed a woman that was in her late 40s early 50s i sort of waving at him across the breakfast table <laughs> hello and he said no 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 it can't be you it can't be you and um and I was just like for fuck's sake so then I ended up sort of helping him cast and go well how about so and so you're, you're kidding she... me really no no <laughs> and suggesting people that I thought would be a really brilliant for the job and then he had a meeting with the producer one day um not long before probably six months before we started filming and said uh Oh yeah, and Denzel and I have had a chat. So yeah, and I think yeah, I think you can play the volunteer. So there was like no fanfare, <laughs> no, no sort of. It was just like yeah, I think yeah, I think it's okay if you do it. So I was like, and said, and then I spoke to Denzel, and he was just like, no, it was only ever going to be you. Of course, it was only going to be you. <laughs> but I think Mark was really concerned about nepotism, so he was a bit worried about about casting me because of nepotism. Um, but then. Touchwood so far. Oh, I think there was one comment a couple of weeks ago about something oh. about it, but I don't think many people no. have kind of. No, I'm sure they don't. And really matter, I mean, it? it's interesting because, of course, I, I was uh, aware and was reading 
about the amongst many influences, the influence of Nick Rogue on Mark's work. And I was reading him interestingly talking about being a kid and studying the book Walkabout and then being shown the film. And I took my kids, my family, to see Walkabout last Sunday. It was showing at the River, Riverside Studios. And I'm a big Nick Rogue fan. And I hadn't seen that film at the cinema ever. And I said, as a half-term treat, I said, right, come on, we're going to, we're going to go and watch Walkabout. And uh, my... My kids are fairly cine literate. I, literate. I, I have to sometimes badger my son Dexter to watch something that you know he thinks something is old when it was made last year. So sometimes I have to really insist. I said, "No, you'll like this. You'll like this." And then, and then, I kind of we sat down, and, and it is an extraordinary film. I haven't seen it for years, and, and I think they were really blown away by it. I think they hadn't really seen anything like it, and they did really, really engage with it. It wasn't like they were going, but they were like whoa, what is this, what is this thing that they're, um, yeah. and I suppose, obviously, because I, I didn't want to read too much about uh, Ennis Mayne, but I, I read bits, but you can see that influence, of course you can, in the, whilst at the same time being wholly original, but the, my question, I suppose, was, when I read about Walkabout, Edward Bond's script, apparently, was like 17 pages long, how long was the script, <laughs> it, you know, given, obviously, dialogue-wise, it's very minimal. It's very little dialogue. Um, 64. Oh, okay. It's a very detailed, very detailed script. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but obviously a huge amount of repetition, you know, she walks across the cliff, she picks up a stone, she drops a stone. I mean, that like every page it's got that on it. Um, she writes in the diary. So a huge amount of repetition, um, and very, and very sparse, but I mean, it kind of made the, um, you know, the the scenes when I've actually got somebody there, you know, the yeah. the lovely Edward Rowe who plays the fish of the 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 boatman. Um, that's so brilliant to actually have somebody to to share a scene with, because it's 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 a really odd thing, kind of feeling like you're doing nothing, and people sort of say, "Oh God, you know, I thought that was great," and I go, "But I don't literally don't do anything," you know, I literally walk across a cliff and drop a stone and so and I know it's, it's quite a strange thing you have I suppose you have to be conscious but you don't want to be too self-conscious yeah. but and it is really that thing I suppose it was good for me as a theatre actor um doing something that was so intensely kind of uh, sort of filmic and cinematic to really really learn that that craft of not telegraphing anything yeah. literally just thinking the thought because you know with knee high and work you know doing a show at Minac or which is the brilliant um theatre on the cliffs in in Cornwall um or any outdoor theatre where you have to telegraph everything in huge physicality um so that is my kind of default so so well, that makes it that makes it even uh, well. It makes it even more astonishing, Mary, because it is an amazing performance, and 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 that the kind of as you say the with the the containment of it, but the simplicity of it, and it's very, it's very hypnotic. It's very strange when you watch it, because you're kind of and of course it doesn't reveal itself very easily, um, no. uh, and it's dealing with big things, grief and loneliness and. But you can't take your eyes off you and the, and the kind of environment and you you in that environment, because it's not just in some ways we share a background in theatre and similar, you know, t told by an idiot, we 
our work is very theatrical as well. But I often think for me, what I love about performing is playing with other people. People say, exactly. I made a show last year and the assumption, because it was quite personal to me, it was about my football team and it was about me. The assumption from the producers went, well, oh, this will be cheap. It's just Paul on his own. And I, and I went, <laughs> no, 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 there's three other no, people no. in it. And they were like, oh, <laughs> God, this was supposed to be just you. It was, you know. And I said, I've got no desire to be on my own. I've, I, I, I like being with, whereas in this, you were fundamentally for large chunks of your time uh, as a performer on your own. And I, I think you, well, I don't know you've explained it, but it, it, I thought it was astonishing. You seemed so in that place where it was so credible. And um, I think it's interesting because that's something that I've managed to talk to people about during Q&As that I think, it, I suppose in the way that when you're with other performers, you're reacting to what they're saying and what they're doing and the physic, what they're kind of showing you, you're reacting to. I had the natural world yeah to just to just sort of react to and be in and um and also i know this sounds a bit you know bit um <laughs> that it that you've i was just being present you know and also i think it i think it helped that i am a physical person so walking on cliffs is really simple for me or or, or pleasurable and easy i don't worry about losing my footing or so i think that um, maybe that kind of came across as well that there was an ease physically as opposed to a, um, I don't know and that, that and I was just sort of reacting to the environment yeah. as opposed to I think that's true in a sense because that's partly what I mean by credible you looked so comfortable in the environment you know I, I bought I bought you as this volunteer yeah. German I went okay I, I, Great. I, I buy this person here and which in I know that maybe sounds a kind of simple thing, but it's quite important in a sense to be able to go, okay, I, I'm not going, oh, maybe she will slip over there. She's not very good on the right. <laughs> so really, yeah, all exactly. Of that yeah, yeah, yeah. But I read a thing that Mark said as well, which struck a chord to me when he said, I love films that foreground the fact that you are watching film. And I, yeah. I, I know what he means. And actually, for us as told by the idiot, that's kind of what we do with our theatre. We are always acknowledging the artifice of theatre, that by its yeah. very nature, and it's what Nehi did. And I think that's kind of what the film does about cinema in a sense. And, and I'm when he said that, I hadn't thought about it, but oh, that's, yes, I, yeah. I kind of see what you mean. And it makes me enjoy it more, weirdly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, my next, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 well, no, no. what he talked about, about sort of the dream state and, and um, cinema was invented, you know, Mark talks about this on Q and A's as well, that, you know, telling people your dreams is about the most boring thing you can do. You can wake up in the morning and go, oh, God, I had this amazing dream. And then it just does, you know, it's for the person listening, never quite does it, does it? Because dreams are about atmospheres, because you kind of have an atmosphere of a dream, don't you? And with film, you can you can create that. You can make those atmospheres to tell those stories so that people ha understand that and kind of feel it. Whereas if you just tell it as a story, you don't. So it's kind of film has the capability of, of creating dream state, dreamlike states for people to experience. I totally agree. And actually, partly because Chaplin's very much on our mind because our, our current show is about Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel. But I remember Chaplin was asked, why <clears throat> why does the, uh, the little tramp never speak? 
uh, when there's only, and he said because the little tramp exists as if in a dream, and in dreams people don't talk, and I thought that was a really good way of looking again at the notion of this figure that even when all the talkies and sound was coming in, he was going no no I, and there's a purity I suppose about almost like the purest sense of film being without words in a, in a way that yeah, the image yeah, of yeah. the. Now, Manit, please tell me the phone is ringing off the hook with offers for you to do more film work, Mary. Um, the... Of course it is. Oh, that's, I don't know. <laughs> this, is, this is the world we live in. I've done one low-budget feature. Um, but the film was week. seen at Cannes. Did you get to go to Cannes? Oh, yes. Oh, come I on, tell can. me about Cannes. Oh, my God. It was so exciting. Is it cool? Did you got the carpet? Uh, we did have a carpet, but of course we were in one of the smaller cinemas and nobody really knew what was going on. So it still uh, can, Mary. They, it still can. Having said that, we did arrive when everybody was already in the theatre, so possibly they were all waiting for us to arrive. Exactly. We arrived late. <laughs> but we'd had a bit of a drama getting there because we'd gone on the train. We didn't want to fly, so we'd, we'd gone on the train. And as the train was coming out of the, the tunnel in front on the French side, there was this amazing electric storm. <clears throat> and further up the track, it, it, this lightning hit the, the track. So everything just sort of stopped. So then we, we didn't know. Anyway, basically, very, very long story short, we couldn't get to Cannes on the night that we were meant to. We had to spend a night in Paris, which obviously was very lovely, but a little bit stressful. I don't think Mark slept very much. And how did the festival um, deal with it then, when she couldn't get? They were fine, no, because we, we, we still, we'd, we were going to arrive the day before the film oh, okay. was on. So what we just did, we had to get up at, um, it was about quarter to five, get a train, uh, change at Marseille, get another train that got us to Cannes, and then we were met by all our lovely oh. sort of you know the entourage yes. um and um they took us to our hotel and stood in the lobby and said right we'll see you back here in an hour so we literally had an hour <laughs> so just change your to clothes unpack jump in the shower get ready and then put our frocks on and head out yeah and what was the, it was brilliant what was the reaction like at the end it was great. I mean, Cannes very strange because you know people just get up and leave, yeah. And they've got flip seats, so you can hear them. It's not like people slip out silently. No, you just hear flip. But thankfully, it wasn't quite like that. Um, so we got introduced. We had to walk down through this full auditorium, several hundred people. Uh, go to the front of the stage. Mark introduced the film, introduced me, and then sat back down. And we just sat there, kind of gripping each other's hands for the whole of the length of the film. It was absolutely excruciating. Um, we hit, heard a few chairs flip, but not too many. Um, and then we got up on the stage afterwards and did a Q&A and, and everybody seemed to really like it. Oh, <laughs> I mean, brilliant. It, it's very strange, though. It is really It's really weird. Strange. People say, oh, what would, what, you know, what, where would you, you, you mentioned Mark and the Oscar or whatever. I've always wanted to be in a film that went to Cannes more than anything else. I don't know why. I just, whenever I read about it and it's on in May and, and my old colleague and co-founder Hayley was in a film by an Italian director called Matteo Gironi, a film called Tale of Tales. And she went to Cannes with that. And and, uh, and she bought me a little fridge magnet from the Cannes Film Festival, Aww. which is as close as I've got so far. But now chatting to you, um, I'm even more determined that maybe I need to have the determination mark out to get me to Cannes. But uh, yeah, yeah, just, just believe. Exactly, just believe. That's very good. That's a very good point. And just before we finish, Mary, it's been so lovely. And, and I can't believe we've not really chatted that much, really. In, in, we've 
cross paths no, over the years, over the years. we've yeah. never been in the same show but this is the beginning of us chatting as well which is nice um, and i'm sure i'll be down in cornwall at some point but i do oh, i, I always so. finish by asking some rapid questions and you give your first answer um number one to be surprised or know in advance um, this is meant to be a rapid answer. Um, that was a surprising question, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> um, I'd be surprised. Uh, surfing or sailing? Oh. You say surfing. neither? Yeah. No, I like surfing. Okay. I just don't do it. Glenn, Glenn, sea Glenda Jackson or Vanessa Redgrave? Glenda. Uh, party on the beach or rave in a field? Uh, uh, party on the beach. The Northern Lights or the Australian Outback? Northern Lights. The Wicker Man or The Exorcist? Or oh, Wicker Man. Film or theatre? <laughs> Let's leave that in the air. Do you want? <laughs> I don't know. That's good. I don't know. Theater, it's a very I good, think. a very good place to end there. It's a ludicrous <laughs> question anyway. But thank you so much for joining us. You've been brilliant. And, oh, um, a total pleasure. As I said, I hope to see you somewhere soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please spread the word 